A warm welcome to the Herty School. Herty School. The Herty School. The Herty School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. Understand today, shape tomorrow. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Herty School in Berlin. Catherine Costello, I am the co-director of the center, uh, along with uh, Professor Bashak Chala. I'm convening this webinar with uh, my colleague, Dr. Itamar Mann, who was the co-editor of a recent special issue of the German Law Journal on, uh, broadly speaking, the topic of border justice, looking at accountability questions around asylum and migration issues with a European focus. Um, and that special issue was um, uh, coordinated also by our other uh, co-convener, Professor Noora Markand, who is Professor for Public Law and Human Rights at the University of Munster. Uh, so together with the center, we felt that this event was timely, and uh, not only because of terrible events in Moria, which again were throwing light on the hotspot issues and the humanitarian uh, catastrophe that they often entail, uh, but obviously with the today's new um, European Commission publication of the European, a new or so-called new European uh, pact on migration and asylum. Uh, I can't claim that we've all fully digested the contents of these documents. There are, in fact, 10 documents comprising this new pact. Um, it's an ex extensive set of proposals, but some of us have spent the afternoon trying to digest them. But we felt that we would bring together a diverse panel to just uh, reflect on uh, both Moria, the hotspot approach, and where Europe is going, broadly speaking, with these questions. It's going to be very much a rapid reaction event, so we've asked speakers to make quite short interventions. Um, so hopefully this will leave you wanting more, and there will, of course, be more commentary and more detailed analysis in time, but we felt that a short uh, event like this would be helpful. Um, all of our speakers are immensely distinguished, and it was an honor that they accepted our invitation. Um, so I'm going to do them a disservice of a very short introduction each. I'm just going to tell you who our speakers are, and we'll moderate the discussion in turn. Uh, the first session is going to be uh, moderated by um, Professor Mann. Um, and in his session, um, we're going to hear from Essam Dawad, who is a psychiatrist and psychotherapist and co-founder of Humanity Crew, an international aid organization specializing in the provision of first response mental health interventions to people in crises. Um, and, and the second speaker will be Isabel Shayani, who is an award-winning journalist and broadcaster. Um, she's the winner of the Grimma Prize uh, and many other awards for her journalism and has been very recently in Lesbos also. Um, then we're going to hand the convenership open to Professor Dor uh, Nora Markard, and she's going to um, uh, convene the session with the speakers, uh, Daniel Howden, another award-winning journalist who's done um, extensive exposés on the role of EU funding and uh, some of the darker sides of the role of the EU in this context. He's the managing director of a really innovative organization, Lighthouse Reports, a nonprofit organization in, um, which pioneers the idea of topic-based newsrooms and sustaining investigative journalism in this field. And Minas Musarakis is legal officer at Refugee Support Aegean, a Greek um, nonprofit organization which focuses on strategic litigation. Uh, and then I'll uh, bring the event to the close with um, a speaker we were extremely delighted to have join us, um, Dr. Tineke Strick, who is a member of the European Parliament for the Dutch Greens, 
but also a professor of citizenship and migration law at the Center for Migration Law at the Radboud University. So a distinguished scholar and uh, politician working on uh, the cold face of these questions. Um, so just in terms of how it will run, uh, each of the speakers, we've asked them to make a very short intervention so we have time for discussion. Um, if you've just joined us, we would ask you if you could turn off your video cameras if you're not speaking and make sure that your microphone is muted. Um, that will make a great difference. Um, and I'll hand over directly to Itamar for the first session. All right. Um, thanks, everyone, for being with us today. I think this is a really um, opportune moment to be discussing um, the themes that we're discussing today. And the opening panel is really uh, bringing uh, two uh, very compelling voices that have a lot of experience on the ground in terms of um, direct work uh, with refugees and asylum seekers. Um, I'd like to open our conversation with Isabel Shayani, uh, who Catherine kindly um, introduced already, to ask you, Isabel, to give us some account of the events in Moria surrounding uh, the fire. And uh, you've been, you, you were there. I'd like you to try to bring us to the field, as it were. Yes. Um, when the fire happened uh, at that night, in the middle of the night, exactly at 12 o'clock, I got a message, a voice message from a family, a mother with three children. We will have been in touch for a year. And amidst all these fires, she sent this voice message to me saying that in Persian, saying that Moria is burning, help us. I was asleep, Europe was asleep. And when I woke up the next morning, she had sent me another video where she was lying on the street with the kids, just with the blanket. So that was how, for me, the whole procedure started. On Friday, we flew to Lesbos and um, and we went to the streets and Friday evening um, was my first encounter with this part of the street that now basically doesn't exist anymore. About, I don't know, a couple of hundred meters where people were somehow, well, surviving on the street, one could say. And there were checkpoints on both sides, as you might have seen on the news. And when we entered the checkpoint, it was like leaving the European Union. People were just, loads of people were just lying on the street. They were just lying there. And our first um, impression was that there was a man and he was saying in Persian, my wife is dying and she was lying on the ground. And then I said, uh, okay, why don't you go to the police and ask for an ambulance? And then he said, I just came back from the police and they said, uh, let her die. Uh, so that I, I thought, okay, maybe this is some kind of uh, Eastern European or uh, Oriental exaggeration. Uh, so. After So we split up because we were in the middle of a report and my colleague, he went on and I with them went to the checkpoint um, and then afterwards um, we found out that yes, the husband was right. Uh, if we weren't there, if we hadn't gone there, then the wife wouldn't have been transported and there, would no be, there wouldn't be any ambulance. Um, what we then witnessed the next days was basically um, that the Greek government, which is really in a mixture of desperation and also that they really want to keep people from coming this way all the way to Greek, we witnessed how they really wanted to dry out and starve out this population because that was their way of getting them into um, the camp, into the new camp. 
Uh, most of the people then after a while gave up. There was uh, no militant pressure. There was just rhetoric uh, pressure from the Greek side. Meanwhile, the police at those checkpoints had uh, everyday random orders. So someday they were allowed to let journalists in, other days they wouldn't. But much more important than the journalists actually were the NGOs. And I witnessed a co a two or three situations where they really shouted at them and said, get away, you're not allowed to distribute money. And they, uh, money, sorry, food. And this was the situation which really sort of shocked me because, um, you know, the, you had the situation during a couple of days that people drank sewage water or at least it was no clean water. I was asking them, are you okay? Do you have diarrhea? Are you throwing up? And um, so this was finally the situation that people moved into the camp out of desperation, of course. They were all sort of traumatized. They were broken. Probably it's different. It's pretty similar to the situation in Nauru, uh, close to Australia, where I suppose the Australians also wanted to break up the spirit of the people. And this is what definitely what the Greeks are also trying to do out of desperation, maybe. Um, so they went into this new camp. Now, the new camp, as you all might have heard, uh, used to be a shoot and drill ground. Uh, so we hear that, that soldiers are there searching for mines. We hear that food is still not enough. My last information from this morning is that um, they're getting food once a day and they're all mostly hungry. They now have water. Uh, toilets have no water. And... Um, Maybe I just at the end, let me just um, comment or, or tell you about the Greek side, because this conflict is a multilateral conflict. And I really feel that the people living on this island are differently, but also traumatized by all these things that happened because their beautiful island, which really is beautiful, it's pretty close to paradise, I would say, um, their island is now completely different and they have a new reality and you have to face it. And especially the people in Moria, now they're not keen on talking to journalists. So on my way back on the airline, I talked to a young lady from Moria and she said, you have to understand, they stole everything from us. Animals, they slaughtered them, tubes, uh, water, pumps, everything. So you have two sides who are really, well, in, in different ways, of course, desperate. And um, I, I asked one of the Afghan ladies that I talked to there, you have a lot of opportunities to talk to the people um, there because they're so desperate and they always ask for advice. And I asked her and I said, did you tell your family back in Iran um, what's the situation like? And she said, yes. I said, did you tell them that you've been living in the forest now for seven days? And she said, yes. I said, did you tell them that you escaped the fire and you, that you hardly survived? And she said, yes. And I said, and are they going to come? And she said, yes. And I, saw, I said, what can keep them away from coming here if this catastrophe doesn't keep them away? So these were my impressions um, from Moria and I came back last Friday. Thank That's you. That's excellent. Yeah, excellent. Thank you so much, Isabel. I'd like to move us uh, uh, forward to Isam, who is, will address, I think, if you can, Isam, some of the mental health aspects of the hotspot approach and what has been going on in the last weeks in Moria as well. You also were there at the same time Isabel was there. Hello, everyone. Um, the things that what happened in Moria with the fire is something that we we expect. We expect it. It's not something that we are not surprised. The the whole approach of the hotspots is is it was a um, you know I think it, it it made a lot of damage to the to the refugees and also to the host communities. Maybe I will start as, as not how I plan to, to say something about the local community. 
because they are now uh, it's much it's much easier to control people when you make them fight each other and it it seems now that there is a fascist of Lesbos or Samos and and there is the refugees on the other side and this is much easier for everyone to you know the the authorities maybe wants to sh- to to shade it like this but the people of Lesbos in 2015 when I saw it, um, first time I visit Lesbos in, in one of my missions they were the most sweet and, and humane people I ever met. Their their support to the refugees was above any, you know, expectation I ever imagined in my life. And when I met a woman, her name is Vaso, and we used to call her the mother of the refugees. And I go to her store and say, hi, Vaso, how are you? She was crying. She said, I have a kid. I need to send him to Athens to, to study, and I don't have money. I'm tired of this situation. And this is what happened. Both populations, uh, there's two two sides, as Isabel said, that they are suffering from this hotspot uh, uh, approach and, and that had been for the last uh, few years. And I think what happened in Moria is not different at all from what's happening in other Greek islands or in Italy or in in Malta or any other places where this kind of backyards of Europe are doing that establishing the the hotspots become like a training center, or I don't know, like maybe I will use some terminology that people would not like, but it's like you put people there and you and you break their spirit. You you make them uh, uh, accept everything else after that. You know, the people who arrive to the Greek islands, the other places, are the strong in their country. They they are the one who fight ISIS and Bashar and regime and cross seas and mountains, and they survive. They are strong. These actually the people I want them next to me as as a, in my in my community. But we, instead of celebrating their strength, we are putting them in this kind of hotspots for 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 sometimes years and months with with you know with a very low um, um, uh, basic needs. They don't have even even the, the really basic needs of of toilet. A lot of sexual abuse. A lot of um, harassment, prostitution, violence, aggression, drug abuse, everything is allowed there and they don't know what's going on after that. So we, we in somehow make, instead of celebrating their strength, we are breaking their spirit and we make them like do whatever we want. And, and we are like praying to send them back or if they will be part of the of of our host communities in the future so they will you know accept everything so if you are a professor or a doctor or architect you will be a truck driver because this is what we want as a white people a truck driver so you will accept this now because after a situation like this after two three years in a situation like this you will accept everything as what happened now in Moria when the people were for several days on, on, on the streets, they try to, to somehow ask for a better situation. Instead of this, the military just block everything and they try some kind of a pressure on them and on, also on aid workers and NGOs. And they open the new camp, which is becoming a new Moria. I don't know how a camp like this will host people in a, on a beach, which is going to be in, in one month and two months it's going to be winter. I don't know how this camp will 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 handle the winter but then the people and also the aid workers and NGOs were in a situation that they have to decide you want to go to that camp or you want to continue suffering in the street and 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 everything is 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 run in in a way that 
you try as much as you can. Not only it's not about the basic needs. You never had about anyone who died from food or like shortage in food and in water. It's all everything is is going around mental health. It's, if everything is going around how we can actually make people in somehow say, oh, it's a bad decision and we need to go back. But the thing is, it's not working. People are really desperate. And as Isabel said about this family in, 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 in the Iran, even all of this, the, fam the family back in Iran will continue. And we see and we saw this that, you know, that people know what's going on in Moria or in Samos and they're still coming. People leaving Libya and they know that there is no uh, uh, rescue boats and they know the whole situation. That means that there's a lot of desperate and people looking for that small, you know, piece of hope be behind the scene. So hotspot is not really working. And, and instead of celebrating the strength, we are doing the opposite and we're making from these people, uh, um, you know, um, destroying every chance for them to really uh, overcome all their traumas back home and also the traumas that they are facing and we are adding in hotspots. So the, the, the experience in hotspots is just an ongoing re-traumatization of things that they've gone through, especially for kids, especially for women, uh, and it's not a safe place at all for them. And, and from this place, I don't see as a profession, as a mental health profession, as a psychiatrist, psychotherapist, I can't see how me or my team can do anything with these children or women. I don't know how I can, or, or, and men also, how we can really make them overcome what they're going through, even if we want to, you know, resettle in, in Germany or in, in Greece or sending back home. Uh, it needs a lot of hours and, and sessions and treatments to just overcome what hotspots actually create to these people, like, uh, unfortunately. And um, yeah, sorry, Utama. Oh, I'm just, um, we have not processed the pact, the new pact for migration, as Catherine said in the beginning, but we do know, at least from a first glance, that there will be something similar to uh, the hotspot approach yeah. in the sense of um, processing at the external border um, of Europe and a kind of waiting period. We don't know exactly how that will look. They but say, they, I want to think about 12 weeks. I, I go through it. Yeah, so, so, so precisely from that point of view, I want to, to understand as a mental health professional, what are the requirements in order not to traumatize someone during this waiting period that can allow, um, you know, to prevent prevent that result if, if there is such a possibility? Yeah, for sure. The, the thing, what we need to understand, we need to understand that there is a, also a psychological journey for people who are forced migrated. Forced migration is not only a body or a machine that moves from one place to another. There is also a mind, a soul, and there's a psychological journey they are going through. If we understand the, the, the psychological journey that they are going through, then we can adjust our intervention. And in, in, in oh, sorry, it's my eight minutes alarm. Uh, so uh, if we understand the, the, the psychological journey of the, of the forced migration, then it's much easier for us to adapt the, the situation. So. Uh, when people arrive to Greece, they are in a fight or flight mode. They are surviving. They are activating all, your, all their, you know, survival mode, how to survive this situation. But when they reach to Europe, and it doesn't matter if it's Berlin or it's Lesbos, which is far away from Berlin, 
for them, they did it. So then they go to a stage where they are, you know, there's some kind of hope. So they shut down their, their fight or flight, which is a biological, you know, reaction of, of a human being. And your steroids goes down and then you start understand, oh, and realizing what happened. So if you want to help someone, doesn't matter if he's in Greece or he's reacting to a, a trauma coming from sea or from a car accident. When, they sh- when a person shut down his fight or flight uh, mode, you need to give him safety. You need to give him certainty. He need to know where he is, what's going on, and what's going this. And the situation now is the opposite. They apply for for asylum. They don't know when the interview is coming. And in the interview comes after seven months. They don't understand when the, the the answer is, and it's stuff like this. So if you, as I go through the document, if it's 12, uh, 12 weeks, this twelve weeks should be very structured, not to the EU, but to the people. You need to tell the people you applying on the first of the month. On the doesn't matter. You can tell her 10, 10 years, but it's okay. They should know when. It, the the waiting, the feel of instability. It's all the time activates things from the future. So this is the the most important thing to do it in that is twelve months. Okay. We have one more minute uh, in this uh, particular session, and I want to have a last word from Isabel on the ramifications that these events in Moria had for communities abroad. Following up on your uh, a strong assertion they will come anyways. So what kind of information reached people, the families, and what kind of um, ripple effects did this have, if you know, on uh, people that are considering um, the migration routes, the, the different migration routes? I know that you're in touch uh, sometimes with people abroad. You mean those who are back in Iran or Afghanistan or those who are not? Yes, yes, the- yes, yes, yes. Um, well, I know that also the family I'm in touch with, that they reported about the situation there. Uh, this I know, but I don't know, apart from this one conversation, uh, that if, if now there are really more people planning to come. And the biggest problem I see is that whatever traffickers might tell them, or however high the prices are or how low they are, I think the biggest problem is hope. Because as long as people have hope that, I yes, I can make it. <laughs> It's really a problem. What do you do with hope? And this is the strongest force. In fact, I think Islam, hope is also the only power that makes you survive in this Moria. I think that's really, apart from resilience, hope is the only thing that gets you through, although they break you. But I guess it's it's hope. And uh, right. let me just add to what, what um, Islam just said and about the hotspots. I think they work if you don't stay there for a long time. We interview people at the beginning and also when people are there for a year. And when you're there for a couple of weeks, it's still okay. But the moment it's getting constant, this is what what really breaks you. And this is when it's getting really difficult. Yeah, in 2015. I I think we need to wrap up this particular session, but thank you so much. I really enjoyed uh, your interventions, very illuminating and uh, informative. And I'm moving uh, to Nora Markhart uh, with your permission. Thank you. Uh, We scheduled this very tightly, so I hope we'll have some time in the end um, to discuss. So um, it is my pleasure to now introduce to you uh, Daniel and Minos. Um, And we're we're going to sort of move from the situation in Moria a little more into what the EU generally is doing in Greece. And I know Minos um, Refugee Support Aegean is an organization that supports migrants with uh, with strategic litigation and that you work on um, securing their human rights in these border situations. What can you tell us about the reality of the current um, common European asylum system as you experience it in Greece at the moment? 
Hi, thanks very much for, for this opportunity. Again, I would echo my previous speakers um, in terms of the urgency and the timeliness of the, of the discussion. I think when it comes to the EU's role in Greece um, and the forms of support that it professes to grant, there are two things of note in terms of the current development. One relates to um, what we would call processing support, namely centered around the border procedure that we've been talking about on Lesbos and other islands, and the other is relocation. So one argument that we have very often heard in the past years has been that the EU is ready to support Greece with managing um, asylum applications through the deployment of experts. This was initially done through the auspices of the European Asylum Support Office, EASO, with uh, member state experts being deployed to share their expertise and support their Greek uh, counterparts. This demonstrated its limitations pretty quickly. So not only did it create uh, coordination issues when people from different backgrounds had to come together to work on specific cases, but it also demonstrated that the EU does not really have a consistent and uniform way of doing RSD. So a lot of actual differences in policy uh, came about. What has proven those limitations yet again is that EASO itself has shifted uh, the approach to support by opting for recruitment of uh, local experts as what we call interim experts that are actually now seconded to the authorities. One other aspect that very often uh, gets raised in those discussions is efficiency and speed. And very often efficiency is seen predominantly as a question of speed. So with a rather paradox or perverse effect in the, in the EU support to Greece when it comes to processing applications, there have been areas where the political implications or considerations behind the ASO involvement, for instance, when it comes to delivering the EU-Turkey deal, have actually led to obstacles or delays in the process rather than speedy procedures, namely because um, EASO has been insistent upon deeming some cases um, inadmissible based on the safer country concept, even though it is clear that the Greek position uh, does not deem that concept applicable to them. That is particularly the case for non-Syrians. Just on this whole aspect of the border procedure that we're definitely um, going to be talking a lot about in the coming months, I would uh, echo what was said previously about the risk of proliferating border procedures, generalizing them as, again, the silver bullet that will solve all of the EU's problems when it comes to migration. Uh, there is indeed a proposed extension of the um, time limits for conducting border procedures from four weeks to 12, with a possibility to go up to 20 weeks in cases of crisis. Now, if we read this against the overall objective of rapid determination and efficient procedures of the Commission proposals, there's, in my view, at least a very clear contradiction that we need to address. Second aspect um, is, as we mentioned earlier, relocation. And this is an area where political capital has been increasing and media attention and coverage has been increasing, even though the actual impact um, and contribution to supporting refugees, first and foremost, but also member states in a difficult position is declining. So what we see at the moment in Greece is a web in a series of different ad hoc voluntary relocation schemes covering very narrowly defined categories, be it unaccompanied children, vulnerable or severely ill children with family members uh, under a bilateral scheme with Germany. Uh, to give you an example on actual delivery of 
relocation pledges, the unaccompanied children scheme that um, had a target of 1,600 children to be relocated has um, so far resulted in the relocation of 239 children. That, of course, is a positive development for children getting out of Moria, getting out, out of other uh, camps with completely abhorred conditions. But for an EU-wide solidarity experiment that has been more often than not lauded as a prime example, it's still very minimal in terms of impact. One other hindering factor is, is the lack of structure, the lack of predictability and transparency when it comes to these requirements. At the moment, we are not quite sure how many schemes are active when it comes to relocation from Greece, what the criteria are. To give you an example, this morning we just had an announcement from the Ministry of Migration and Asylum that there would also be relocation of re recognized refugees, so beneficiaries of protection. So again, there seems to be a bit of a fragmentation of solidarity efforts so that it is something that is digestible enough politically for member states, um, but also something that can be presented as, a, as an EU-wide success. And the last thing that I would like to add in this regard is that this, this fragmented ad hoc approach seems to be codified in the, in the Pact on Asylum and Migration. So the, the new Dublin, let's say, the Asylum and Migration Management Regulation codifies um, a wide set of different solidarity contributions, are, as these are called. And even when it comes to relocation, there seem to be many different options that member states can choose from. And that is likely to result in a bit of a complicated process. I might leave it at that because I'm conscious of time, but happy to discuss in the community. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much for your concise statement. Um, Daniel, uh, you're uh, the managing director of Lighthouse Reports, and you've uh, revealed actually a lot about um, the impact of EU policies um, in Greece uh, at the borders, um, also the role of Frontex and EU financing, arms exports, and so on. So you're sort of looking at the big picture, um, just sort of to remind everyone um, that a lot of the accountability issues raised by EU involvement are also discussed in the German Law Journal special issue that Catherine and Itama have published with the German Law Journal the spring on border justice. Um, what can you sort of, what's your view of the current role of the EU and sort of the challenges that um, the EU pact would ideally address? Thanks. Um, I came to this, um, I would say most fully back in 2016 um, when deciding to try and investigate what happened to the money that was spent to what at the time was the um, most expensive humanitarian uh, response that we've ever seen. Um, so this is during 2015 and 2016, trying to uh, set up a response to um, increasing numbers of arrivals across the Eastern Aegean. Given the scale of the expenditure, which inside the first year went beyond 1 billion euros, um, and the pitiful state um, of the reception um, that resulted from that, and the extraordinary archipelago of camps that stretched out all over Greece, we thought that we were beginning a corruption investigation. Um, it was hard for anyone to conceive at the time that it was possible to have arrived at such um, squalid results uh, without some kind of wholesale corruption having filleted these funds on their way to the final recipients. What we found instead was basically revealed the, the nature of the uh, European Union's relationship with, uh, with a frontline state like Greece. Um, it was it was the European Union giving what it um, what was easiest to give, 
which was cashed through its uh, asylum and migration fund um, and internal security funds and then various different additional emergency mechanisms. Um, and he had been deliberately given in a way that meant it had no ownership over the consequences of how that money was spent. Um, it happened that it crashed into a particular phase um, of uh, a very, let's say, a very different political phase in Greece. Um, I wrote down at the time what I thought were the kind of the norms um, of Greek migration management. Um, and they had been under the Conservatives leading up to um, 2014. Um, it was a, the norms were pushbacks, arbitrary detention, police brutality, and impunity. And we then got a new set of norms, which were under the leftist government, which were basically administrative paralysis, humanitarian rhetoric, and state withdrawal. Um, now we've lurched back to the first set of norms again, so pushbacks, arbitrary detention, police brutality, general impunity. The European position hasn't particularly shifted um, during any of this. Um, the, the point was to, to be able um, to say um, that it had provided the finances for a humane reception um, service. Um, to do this in a kind of extra legal way, which didn't really sit inside national law um, and wasn't directly um, for which the, the European Union agencies that were doing this funding were also not directly responsible. And we saw the ultimate expression of that um, during uh, when we've seen deaths inside Moria um, when the camp was up and running. They essentially landed in an institutional grey zone. Nobody had responsibility for them. Um, we had camps all over the country with no administrators. Um, we had the whole system falling into, into completely different administrative functions um, and being partly funded by the national government, partly funded by the EU. Um, it, it was designed to be a mess. It was sustained um, in this chaotic condition. It's quite telling that most of the time during this period, the, the most senior European Commission figures who've been tasked with, um, have had the relevant portfolio, Dimitris Savaramopoulos and now Margaritis Schimas, are both Greeks. They are fully conversant. There is no mystery whatsoever for them in terms of trying to understand the Greek administration and its priorities. Um, so we've had this kind of standoff. I mean, the, it's been very clear from the beginning that the European Union wants to be seen to do, um, to provide money, uh, but pass responsibility over to Greece and will then do nothing to ensure that there is any kind of accountability on the Greek side. Um, it's almost, you can, you can be drawn into spending too much time looking at this and missing the major point, which I think has been absent from a lot of discussion today, which is that since March, the EU-Turkey statement, the agreement that sits underneath um, all of this architecture of containment in the Eastern Aegean is non-existent. Um, the pretense of the new asylum and migration pact is that the EU-Turkey statement will be revived in new form um, and that will underpin the functioning of essentially a gigantic series of documents, 10 documents I think Catherine said, but um, we're all working our way through them. But the underlying assumption of all of them um, there is no new idea there in terms of how to manage this. Um, we've got, instead, we're being presented with the speed of processing, which essentially is a promise that we will empty out the facilities that are creating the 
tension between local communities and keeping people in such miserable conditions that one group will be returned and the other group will be relocated or integrated in Greece. This all sounds extremely neat, but it presupposes that there will be no further flows. So it's going to bring me to the last bit, which I'd like to make a quick comment on, which is the role of Frontex in all of this, because this is um, key to this. Frontex has is on the is on the cusp of creating itself as a super agency within the EU funding structures um, with a gigantically expanded um, budget, and it's done so largely because it's proved itself to be expert in manipulating member states' anxiety over migration. Um, what it presents is a technical series of solutions to better migration management, couched in exactly those kinds of terminologies. What it's actually doing in the Aegean at the moment is standing by with a completely clear picture of the legal maritime pushbacks. It's watching what is actually preventing uh, more people arriving to claim asylum inside the Greek system. It's, it's watching this in considerable detail. It's fully aware of it. And what it is, is as many possibly as 200 illegal maritime pushbacks um, conducted. I mean, it's men in masks, stealing engines, um, beating people up, kidnapping people from islands and putting them into life rafts, teenagers being left alone and drifted and pushed towards Turkey, while extremely expensive international sea craft patrol around making waves, um, making waves to push them back or um, standing by to watch this all happen. Um, this is the, there is this kind of disconnect between the technical discussions that are happening over, over um, today's asylum and migration pact and the reality um, of what's actually going on. Um, and for me, the, the assumption that sits underneath all of this is that the eu Turkey statement can be revived. Greece will be a bystander in this. Um, Greece happens to, the pendulum has swung back towards the right in the country at the moment. So you're back to a series of migration management norms which are much more aggressive um, than the previous administration, but the European position stays the same, and I see nothing in the early, early um, study of the asylum and migration pact to suggest to me um, that something fundamental has changed from that side. I would say that it's, it's important to, to note that the EU is, of course, bound by the 27 member states um, and therefore cannot um, cannot be held entirely responsible for the political calculus in the 27 member states, but um, I'm sure that will come up in the discussion to follow. Thank you, Daniel. Um, just because we have a just a few minutes left for this uh, block of conversation, um, one question to Minos. Um, Daniel has talked a lot about, as you have, um, the failures of both Greece and the EU to address uh, glaring violations of human rights. Um, that is something that you try to address with uh, strategic litigation. Um, so my question would be where you see the the main accountability benefit, uh, um, deficits and whether um, you are looking for measures to like legal uh, measures to address these in the new pact. And Daniel, I have a question from um, the audience um, on uh, the recent reports that Lighthouse has also been contributing to on the pushbacks and violence at the Evros border um, and the new monitoring mechanism involving the fundamental rights agency that's been um, proposed in the in the new uh, instruments and whether that might provide some relief at all. Uh, Minos, do you want to start and just keep it quite brief so we can um, move on to the next speaker soon? Thanks. Thanks. Yes, I'll try to be very quick. So the the main enforcement deficit when it comes to the SAS, of course, 
stems from the commission. Obviously, there are quite understandable political constraints underlying the, the commission's choice not to um, identify and go after violations of EU law by member states. But of course, that contributes if to, if not encourages a climate of perceived impunity or um, leniency when it comes to how member states understand their obligations. And there are even institutional and legal obligations that the commission has to fulfill and has failed to do so under um, its previous but also current mandate. So to remind yet again the fact that we're embarking on yet another big reform of the SEAS without having had the evaluation of the uh, asylum key currently in force, three years after the expiry of the deadline, and after numerous insistent um, reactions from the European Parliament is quite telling of how the Commission understands its role as an enforcer. Thank you, Daniel. The in, sorry, the independent monitoring mechanism, I would say, is probably the token gift to Ilva Johansson um, in return for what is otherwise a laundry list of everything um, that the other commissioners wanted. Um, I'm, I'm glad to see it there. Um, and just for people who are less aware of this, an independent monitoring mechanism is due to be set up in each of the member states. They, the member states themselves will decide how this is constituted, and this um, should uh, investigate claims of fundamental rights violations, um, including pushbacks. Um, but let's just think about this. This is, we're going to ask Greece, uh, which has made no effort to engage with rock-solid evidence um, of its illegal actions and has dismissed um, all reports of this to the contrary as fake news, even as junior members of its own government strut around boasting to their own supporters um, of how many pushbacks they're performing. Um, so it, it, until I see how that independent monitoring mechanism, what it will mean solidly in practice, um, it's certainly a step forward on paper um, from having Frontex police itself and from having member states police themselves over this. Um, but it, it's hard to be optimistic at this point. Thank you. And that uh, means I'm now handing over to Catherine and Tineke to um, address the pact in a little more detail. Great. Uh, thank you, Nora, Minas and Daniel. Uh, Tineke, it's wonderful to have you and we're really looking forward to hearing from you. And Case, we can still see you. So if, if you'd like to turn off your video <laughs> camera, that would be great. It is lovely to see Professor Case Cronin also. But <laughs> we've asked all non-speakers to turn their cameras off. So Tineke, I'm, we're really looking forward to hearing your first take on things. Okay, thanks Catherine and also thanks for the invitation and good that you have organized this so quickly after the release of the, the PAC plans uh, and of course I'm a little bit handicapped because I also did not digest it uh, completely into detail but I think um, all the contributions just before gave a very good overview of the reasons why it is so important to have a fundamental change of the current system and uh, the Commission promised last week also um, 
very vigorously that uh, the new pact would uh, bring an end to the situation of Moria, that would bring an end to the suffering at the external borders. Um, so you can imagine that we were very disappointed when we finally saw the content of the proposals. Maybe I can just go very briefly through the main principles of the, because I don't know if everyone already had had the chance to, to look into it. Um, if I look at the, the, the border situation, um, then you see that uh, after a screening period of five days, where there is an identity check, but also a vulnerability check, a medical check, which is of course good, uh, then uh, there will be made a decision if people go to uh, through the border procedure or through a, to a normal procedure uh, on the mainland. And um, here you see that there's a mandatory border procedure uh, applicable for cases of, of applicants coming from a, um, a country uh, where the asylum claims are uh, have less than 20% of, uh, um, uh, of a recognition rate, but also if there uh, are false documents used or, or other indications of fraud. And this can be, of course, uh, often the case with asylum seekers who don't have uh, official and authentic uh, documents. But maybe even more concerning in, in the context of Moria is that this is the mandatory application, but member states can also choose to apply the border procedure in other cases as well. Um, uh, especially if there, someone is coming uh, from a safe third country. Well, if you then think of the EU-Turkey deal, which also uh, will be renewed, um, then you can be pretty sure that the Greek authorities will uh, maintain uh, uh, applying the border procedures on, on people, all people who arrive from Turkey into uh, Greece on the islands, especially because uh, the residents on, on the islands is a prerogative for the Turkish authorities to readmit uh, the asylum seekers if they will do that uh, ever. Uh, but so that will mean that I don't see any end to the, the long waiting periods in, uh, in, in, in the Greek uh, uh, hotspots, especially while it's still the, the responsibility of the national authorities to have an effective border procedure, to have the right reception conditions and, and, and an efficient procedure. Of course, there will be help from EU agencies, but we had that already. EASO was there, was giving support, and still we saw a year's waiting periods and, and awful circumstances. So I, I'm, I'm really not optimistic that this situation will change. Especially while you see, if you look at the, the, the new Dublin regulation, so to say, that the main obstacle for a fair distribution of asylum seekers has not been removed. And that is the first princi the pr principle that the first member state of entrance is and remains responsible for this uh, asylum request. That has even been extended. We're now some uh, member state is responsible for one and a half year. It has been extended up to three years. And if uh, people, uh, asylum seekers, decide to move further, uh, they uh, don't have any access to reception conditions in another state. So this is the, the negative uh, uh, incentives for the asylum seekers uh, that they have to return or stay in, in the country of uh, first um, uh, uh, entry. So the whole idea was we will uh, uh, achieve a more fair sharing of responsibility. But if you look at uh, the system that is proposed now, 
it, it creates a, a, a massive bureaucracy and a lot of uh, separate decisions to be made by both the Commission and the Member States, which creates a lot of possibilities for politicization, uh, uh, nasty debates whatsoever, because uh, the Member State of first entrance, so the Member State at the border, needs to request the Commission to start this relocation or this, uh, this mandatory solidarity system uh, in case of migratory pressure. And, and I saw in the definition, what is migratory pressure? It also um, mentioned the criteria that, uh, well, for instance, migratory movements that place a burden even on well-prepared asylum and reception systems. So that may even mean that the Commission, while assessing if there's a pressure, it will also look at, okay, but is the member state to blame for it or not? Uh, could it avoid this pressure or not? Is it responsible for its own failures? Um, and when the Commission decides that uh, there is a case of, of pressure, then you will get this cafeteria model that, that member states can choose to either give financial support, um, uh, deploy uh, officials uh, in that uh, member state, uh, support in the return procedures uh, while the, the people stay at the border or relocate asylum seekers. So that offers uh, in, an immense leeway for the member states to say, okay, we're not going to do that. And uh, it will still be uh, uh, depending on the political will of a member state. And it will also lead to ad hoc situations. And actually you can say, first, there needs to be a big problem, maybe also culminating in a crisis before there will be a, a kind of mandatory uh, system where uh, member states finally decide to, to take over uh, asylum seekers. So this is really not a, the fundamental improvement. What Daniel said, we need, and Minos, we need a fundamental change. This is not in it. Therefore, we really need to depart from the principle of the first state of entrance carries more responsibility than another. Maybe just to highlight a few other elements, um, this, um, yeah, this crisis mechanism, if there is a, a crisis system, uh, a crisis situation where we, we, which may uh, um, be developed because of a lack of solidarity, then there's also the possibility for member states to derogate from specific procedural safeguards. So this is also something to really be uh, well looking at very carefully to see what that would mean for the right to asylum and, uh, and procedural safeguards. What you also see, and this will also lead to uh, um, a lot of pressure and, and also um, uh, really inhumane situations perhaps is the linkage between the asylum procedure and the returns procedure. The return border procedure, which was formally uh, proposed in the recast return the, the, uh, directive, has now been merged in the, the, the uh, amending proposal on, on the asylum procedures regulation. That means that uh, if um, uh, the asylum claim has been rejected within those 12 weeks, uh, the person can uh, can uh, be obliged to stay there. It, it's all in detention, actually, de facto detention, and they can be held in detention uh, for another 12 weeks. But if you look at it carefully, you see that the whole provision 
on detention for the returns directive is applicable also there. So I read it in a way that people can stay there for up to two years. And so first the 12 weeks of the asylum procedure and then the 18 months for uh, the returns directive in border closed detention centers. Uh, this is the way I see it because they are not uh, uh, getting permission to enter the territory of that member state. Now, finally, uh, on the um, uh, um, fundamental rights monitor mechanism, indeed what Daniel said, we were, were really hoping for that, but you see that it's still left to the member states. Of course, it's encouraging, huh? it, it's an improvement. But on the other hand, we had really hoped that there would be a monitor mechanism at the EU level with more safeguards. And now we're depending on the national member states. It may give more legal basis for the Commission to uh, enforce compliance, of course, with a, a monitor mechanism. But in the end, I think that all the obligations we already had already gave a legal basis for the Commission to enforce compliance, but it was never used before. So at least we have a, a, another additional stick for the Commission to, uh, uh, to hold her accountable for uh, coming up with infringement procedures or enforcement of compliance in another way. And Indeed, to finalize, um, it's just also what Minu says, uh, it's, it's not an evidence-based proposal. I mean, there was no impact assessment. We lacked a lot of uh, implementation reports before, so we did not know what was the problem uh, effectively in the countries. The only thing that we really knew what was that uh, the Dublin principle uh, created an, an, an disproportionate uh, burden on the external borders. And exactly that has not changed. And um, well, actually, what I would say, uh, we, of course, are going to try to put more pressure on, uh, um, uh, on the member states also to, to go along with another responsibility sharing. The European Parliament in the previous term had a common position uh, that said there should be a proportionate, so a common responsibility. Hopefully we will keep that position. And all in all, I would say uh, it's really time that the Commission is going to make serious work of compliance with the rules, not only at the external borders to prevent pushbacks, but uh, throughout uh, the procedures and the receptions, because I think that's what we really need instead of for years uh, stranded in, in negotiations that will um, maybe not lead to a result anyhow. Right. Thank you so much, Tineke. You've taken us through what is just a, you know, a hugely complex set of proposals and highlighted what's just simply rehashing and what is, you know, perhaps a glimmer of hope here and there for a slightly different approach, um, in particular with this independent monitoring mechanism, as you said. Um, I know we have a lot of people wanting to come in with questions. Um, I'm just going to ask you, you one, maybe, if you had to single out something of value in the new proposals, um, you know, where where would you identify, you know, the, the most significant positive change within the proposals? Oh, I think you're mute, muted. I mean, it, it, it it's not a very uh, uh, big element, but important for the ones who are concerned. And that is that minors 
family with small children are exempted from the border procedure. So that would mean that they immediately after the screening are uh, uh, referred to normal procedures uh, on the land. And, and I'm really happy for that those children will not be seen anymore in camps like Moria. Okay, thank you for highlighting that. Yeah, it's crucially important. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herdy-school.org.